Today, my guest is Ian Koniak from IK Sales Coaching. Ian's claim to fame really is that he did 100 million in sales at Salesforce. Uh, he hit a peak. Uh, he hit a wall. Um, he uh, started to um, self-destruct, um, and he managed to find his way back and then reach peak performance again. So today, we're going to be looking at the dark underbelly of selling and success defining what success really means and um, what happens uh, if you realize that you've been digging you know for treasure in the wrong place and uh, you suddenly hit bedrock and you think oh no um maybe i'm um, misdirected and you know what are the knock-on effects so we're going to be looking at the uh, things like addiction bad behavior infidelity all these things that are very real in the world that we live in and especially as you become more and more successful. So Ian, first of all, welcome. Thank you. Great to be here. And I'm I'm so glad we're talking about this. I get I hear you talking and I get my my heart starts pounding because it brings back some some bad times, some bad memories. But I think it's an important topic for a lot of people who are successful in some ways and maybe not successful in, in person in their personal lives, right? I hope that this isn't too painful, but I I I do agree. It's such an important topic. And facing my demons, working with my clients and helping them face theirs. It's a constant theme and it's almost never spoken about. And I think unless people shine a light on it and talk about it, it will remain shady and shameful. But you want top producers. So you also have to bear in mind that they're human, they're fragile, they're brittle, they're broken already. And then you put them in a position where they're masters of the universe because they've suddenly found their groove and they don't know what the hell to do with it. Tell us your story. Yeah, I mean, I'll try to do the summary summary version because I can talk the whole time on how I got where I am. But the short version is I was raised by a single mom initially and she got remarried and you know, my my parents split when I was very young and she was an extremely hard worker, extremely. She had to provide for my brother and myself. And she took us from California with, with no money or from New York to California. We were, I was born in New York when I was only two years old. My mom took me and my brother didn't have anything except a job lined up. And really I had her as a role model growing up. My dad, who was extremely loving and kind hearted, I didn't see except in the summers and winters when I went and visit and he had his demons. He he did struggle with addiction and he ended up dying when he was 54 years old. And um, so I had this kind of two parts of me, this one like very hardworking mother who I was exposed to and then this loving, passionate father who had his demons that he he really, I don't know if he ever faced, I think towards the end of his life, he got sober and he faced some of his demons, but I never really got to know him and that side of him. It was always put on a good face with me, but I know he struggled with depression. I know he struggled with addiction. And so my whole life was this trying to model after my mom and be this hard worker and this achiever, but having these kind of like internal addictive tendencies that would just show up. It originally started with high school, you know, experimenting with drugs and alcohol. And in terms of college, it escalated to sex and gambling and harder drugs and you know, I never was really happy in my own skin. I was always kind of seeking, seeking another place. And and it's it's funny. I I ended up after college living in Venezuela, going to teach English. Left everything and just moved there by myself. Didn't know the language. So I've always had this like very 
big desire to like live life to the fullest and go really hard. And when I was in Venezuela, it's funny, there was not much access to drugs and alcohol, believe it or not, in the places where I was, it was pretty shady to go out and, and to try and get high when you're in Venezuela. So I, I stopped all this stuff and I lived this full year of like abundance where I was just climbing mountains and teaching and I fell in love and I, I got this taste of what it likes to, to live in, in, in your you know, in your, in your zone, uh, if you will. And, and my visa ran out, I come back to the U S and I have no girlfriend cause I can't bring her here. I have no money and I have no job. So I went from this like high of highs to this low of lows. And that is when the addiction really started proliferating much greater. And that's also the same time I got into sales. So for the past 20 years, I got into sales originally in 2002, and it's been 20 years now, I've had this combination of being extremely high achiever, but with this, these like addictive tendencies that ended up, you know, as the more money I made and the more successful I was in sales, the bigger my ego became and the more I misbehaved. And I, I had a lot of just this roller coaster. I, I was on this roller coaster for most of my sales career, where it was like this work hard, play hard, work hard, play hard. And it ended up you know, it took me 17 years, I guess, until I finally got off the roller coaster with a lot of scares in between with a lot of really close calls, if you will. But I finally faced my demons and got sober in 2020 from a number of addictions. And, you know, it turns out what I was seeking was right in front of me the entire time. So I've had this kind of come to Jesus awakening of, of, you know, realizing what was important in my own life and recentering around my family, around my spirituality, around my health. And, and it's been, um, it's really been a wild ride, but now I get to help people and I, I quit my job. I became a coach and now I get to help people not only learn how to sell, but also do it in a way where they don't sacrifice their health or their family or their values in the process, which was kind of my journey. So that's, that's a summary. An amazingly interesting story. And you definitely have to speak to Michael Brody Wake. The two, uh, the two of you, I think would make a fantastic platform. I'll, I'll get you both on the, plat, uh, the platform together. And what fascinates me is how we know it goes on. And it's fairly obvious because there are, these outrageous expense claims. I, I remember um, one chap when I was in recruitment coming back with a £10,000 expense claim. Now, bear in mind, this was 25 years ago when £10,000 was a shitload of money. And he'd managed to take these clients out to clubs and strip bars and uh, God knows what else, but 10 grand for the weekend. And he managed to land the deal. There was a lot of fury around the expense claim because the CFO was very pissed off. But a couple of months later, he did something very similar. And then a couple of months later, something very similar. But it was all forgivable because he got the result. And I'm curious about the responsibility of senior leadership to create the right kind of conditions so that people can thrive without falling into these negative behavioral cycles. That's a big question, but I think. Wow. <laughs> that's, that's, a, I don't know if it's possible. I don't know. I think there's things you can do to relieve a little bit of the pressure on salespeople, such as 
treating them as a human, understanding their goals and priorities, coaching to the individual versus just the number to make people actually feel seen and heard, but not creating, like looking the other way when people do shit that's out of integrity to get a deal done. I think that's important, but ultimately it does come down to the individual and it comes down to them recognizing what's right and wrong. And, and I know exactly once you said $10,000, I knew you would say strip clubs because I've, I've been there. And unfortunately many other people were when I would go to the clubs and in, in the events full of clients and, and sales reps and certainly um, doing things that were uh, out of integrity with a lot of the relationships that I know they were in. So yeah, that's, that's not uncommon at all. It's quite common. And then you add in drugs and alcohol and some of the partying that goes on too. And now we have a, a recipe for disaster, if you will. I'm not judging from a moral standpoint. I, I'm asking the question, if you're creating the conditions where these kind of people who are high performers are naturally attracted to it, you're creating also the conditions for their own destruction, unless you're taking care of these wonderful assets. And my, my question is, where does the responsibility lie? Because yes, the individual has responsibility, but addicts don't necessarily have control over their behavior. And the, the addiction is triggered on the basis of the conditions. Because when you're in Venezuela, you had no addictions. That's um, so true. When, That's so true. And when you were not with those people. So again, I, I'm questioning whether we need to really look at the recruitment pathway of top performers and the things that trigger them. So I've certainly always felt really deeply uncomfortable when my management tried to put me under pressure to lie to a customer, to put them under premature pressure to make a decision when they weren't ready, but it suited my CFO's number. I mean, that's not serving the customer. And so that jarred with my, uh, my values system and so I couldn't stay in those organizations because it didn't, it just didn't work for me. And then I have a 16 year stint because what I was able to do did fit with my value system. So if you're in the right place, you get people to stay for a very long time and produce well. So this feels like a bit of a one-sided uh, rant on my part. I agree. I mean, it, it's, you have to know if you're bought, here's for me, it's, it's like if my boss is asking me to lie, if my boss is asking me to do something unnatural, I think you're gonna, as someone who values honesty and who values customer centricity and putting the customers first, you have to push back on your boss. I mean, this is going on right now a lot in companies where there's tremendous pressure to perform. People are wanting to get the deal done at all costs because of um, revenue pressure you know, associated with, with the economic downturn. I'm getting this from my coaching clients. A lot of them are saying, my boss is asking me to cut the deal in half. My boss is asking me to get this signed now at the expense of the larger deal. It's going to take another month and a half. And I, I always, my advice is always the same. You need to do what's right for yourself and for the customer, not for your company. If your company is telling you to do things that you fundamentally disagree with and you think are going to hurt the relationship, you need to push back and you need to justify it and explain why, not just take orders. So if, if you have a boss or if you have a company that is putting immense pressure on you to do something that's unnatural, that's going to hurt the relationship or that's unethical, you have an obligation to push back. And if it continues to happen, you have an obligation to leave because you will be 
out of integrity with your own values and your own selling character. And, and uh, yeah, I, I couldn't agree with you more. So I, I just think if that kind of behavior is going on at the company level, eventually the company is going to collapse because the culture of the company is the behavior of the leadership and people are going to leave and customers are going to leave and it's going to eventually catch up with you. So I think it's the responsibility of both the individual and senior leadership where they see if there's top performers that are doing it the wrong way, that they can't just look the other way because they're top performers and say, well, this person can get away with it because they're the high producer. I think you have to value ethics and, and specifically integrity as much as you do in the sales cycle as you do with just performance. So then let's look at the investor's responsibility. Where do you think the investor's responsibility and focus should lie? I mean, investor is if I think of the word invest, I think of time and resources and money. So if you're just investing money and you think you're a good investor, you're going to fail as an investor. I think if you want to invest in a company, you need to invest in helping coach and train and lead and put the right people and and invest in the right talent. And if you're a private equity company, or if you are a VC or any of these companies, and this isn't an area that I know and familiar with because fundamentally I came from big companies that were public companies. So I, I'm not in, in intimate with like the startup space, but I know what the word invest means. And it's to, to, um, to give and to put in your time and resource and money. And I think investors' responsibility are to make sure that they're leading by example, not just leading with with financials, but if something's not working, that they're rolling up their sleeves and figuring out and spending the time to understand, is it a culture issue? Is it a people leadership issue? Is there a product market fit issue? And really not just say, give me this return. Give me this return. I put this money back. Like you can't expect that and not put in the time to kind of assess what, what's happening. So I think- the, the, the one thing you missed that I thought was really important in that list was, is it us? Because very often the investment criteria or the evaluation criteria drive long-term compensation of senior leadership and everything then is driven through the organization through the investment model. So if the investors are speculators, they're throwing in money and they're playing roulette and they're betting on a number of um, you know, uh, reds and blacks along the way, then presumably they don't really care which ones come in as long as enough horses make it over the line to give them the return they need in order to get there and keep their investors happy and exit with a decent chunk of change. Yeah, I mean, that's the problem with it, right? It's like they're expecting one in 20 to succeed, one in 10, so they're not as invested because yeah. it's a numbers game and they're just trying to, to hedge their bets quite a bit. But that's right. okay. not- so Where investors have a speculator's mindset and where there is a short runway, certainly my advice would be don't get involved in those companies, especially if you're changing now, because chances are they're going to be grist mills. They're going to be focused only on the exit and all the pressure will be on just to hit the number at any cost. Would that be fair and reasonable advice? hundred percent, hundred percent. And it's like, who are your stakeholders? If you're a company, who are your stakeholders, right? You have multiple stakeholders. You have your customers, right? The people using yeah. your products and services. You have your employees, people that work for you, and you have 
your investors and in, in the people who are funding your company or stockholders or shareholders if you're a public company. And one thing I really loved about Salesforce and the values of Salesforce was it was always a customer first, you know, versus an investor first. And, and they said, well, we're not profitable. We're not profitable, but we want to make our customers successful. We measure customer success and customer attrition. And that was always at the core of the value system. Customer success was number one. Everything we do is for our customers. Then it was employees, right? And, and when we make our employees happy, that in turn makes our customers happy. And then it was the investors. And that worked really well until I'd say it's shifted a little bit. It seems like I've been, I haven't been there a year and a half, but Salesforce had never done layoffs. They hadn't done a ton of layoffs. It wasn't common. And now, now you see, and you read the news, there's some layoffs going on and, you know, it's interesting, but the stock prices have tanked there like other places. But I feel like if you're putting the investors first, you're going to miss the boat. It's it's not about that. It's not about the making of the money. It's about making sure you're investing in your employees because when you have happy employees, you're going to have happy customers and people are going to stick around a lot longer and making sure your customers are successful. So that's why I don't take private money for my business because I don't want to have to be beholden to my investors. I will never take money. And absolutely, it's it's for that reason. Again, I can appreciate that because personally, I would rather have the control in a profitable small business than a large monster um, over which I have, uh, I say control. Um, <laughs> the paradox is unless you let go, chances are you don't have any control anyway. But uh, let, let's not go down that rabbit hole because that could take. Okay, so. Uh, where were we? You said, um, just rewind me a second. Beholden, beholden to which, who is your, who are you working for? Your customer? Your yeah. who, who, who are you working for? Um, and again, understanding the different uh, drivers of the key stakeholders, because I think too few people really understand all the different moving parts within their customer's uh, business, because they look at the job titles who, um, naturally use or sign off on their product. But I don't think they look at the wider ecosystem in which those people operate. And the net result of that is that they leave inordinate amounts of money on the table, but also they fail to serve a lot of non-customers who could be either internal advocates in the evaluation process or even purchasing customers who could pay for it because the seller hasn't spent enough time really understanding the customer because they're being driven by these other metrics from the investors and from leadership. Mm -hmm. And my pal, Bob Mester says something which is just pure genius, which is the consumer is the innovator. Now, when you actually spend time talking to your customers, talking to your people, talking to your partners, and really getting to grips with the job they're trying to get done, their role in executing that job and seeing the moving parts, suddenly you've got a real sense of what matters. But the bulk of vendor organizations are fixated on the everything but that. They're focused on yeah. the revenue number and the valuation. Well, it's interesting because if you think about SaaS in general, um, it's a huge amount of revenue comes from renewals and from expansion of the customers that already are using your product. I think in Salesforce, it, it was should. 80% as it should, right? And and 
a lot of the sales reps are, I mean, there's, I'll just give you two examples. And I do want to talk about the dark side of sales and some of the stuff, you know, you and I, you and I connected on, but from a, just from a pure leadership standpoint, you know, what you, you get what you measure, right? So I'll give you two examples of what, what is wrong in a lot of companies I see. The first example is that sales reps are only paid on cross-selling and upselling in a lot of organizations. They're only paid on expansion. But if you look at companies like AWS and Microsoft, they also have a big chunk of their um, target based on renewals and consumption. So AWS's model is get Mm -hmm. as much technology in front of Amazon Web Services, as much technology. Adoption and consumption. Adoption and consumption. And that's how the sales reps are paid for the bulk. And then there's a little bit more for for expansion and growth. And, And that is huge because if you have a customer that has a bunch of shelfware and a bunch of licenses that aren't being utilized, or if they have your product, but they're only using one feature out of 50, you know, they're going to most likely a trip and they're going to be assessing, am we, are we really getting the value? And especially as, as times tighten up and as, as purse strings tighten up, um, you're going to be a tremendous, tremendously at risk. And we're seeing that a lot, you know, with, so, so if you're going to be a, a leader that's measuring sales reps, it's important to have a component of retention in there so that you can go in and see how the customers are doing, what's working well, what's not working well. And here's the irony. When you go and talk to your customers and really understand their current challenges and their current desires, you're going to have a lot of growth opportunity too, just from the getting to know them. So that's that's something. Uh, This comes back to one of the big triggers for the dark side of sales which is the short-term thinking, the mm. short-term quarterly focus and the emphasis on short-term pipeline, what's coming in this quarter, you might look a bit into next. But in my experience, the, the most successful, consistently, predictably successful salespeople have a strong medium-term pipeline mm-hmm. and they're consistently working those relationships uh, as the customer moves from... Uh, realizing that there may be an issue and making space for it into passive looking where they're learning what their uh, choices are. Then uh, when they're active looking, working out what options they uh, could implement. And then as they're moving into decision-making, trading off the stuff that they don't need uh, for the stuff that they do need. Now, as they go through that process, if you've taken the time to focus on the medium term, there's never any pressure or stress. But if you're focused on the short term, then you've got to try and bring in those deals. And you have those, you know, that last two weeks of the quarter where everything goes haywire. And then a 35-week month because you just got to squeeze stuff in and fiddle the books. And, And all of that pressure compounded at the end of every quarter. And it just becomes this vicious cycle where Mm. um, they're consistently going peak trough, peak trough, peak trough. And they're having to bring deals forward to steal from next quarter, knowing that there's this massive tariff. Now you've got this pressure. Now you succeed despite all of that shit being thrown at you. Of course, you're looking for a release. And if you miss it, you're looking for a release. (laughs) And if you miss it, you're looking for a release. And you're feeling hard done by, and you're thinking your job's in jeopardy. So now you're packed full of cortisone and all those other horrible things that are whizzing around your system. And it takes weeks for that stuff to come out. Yeah. It's, constant. It's, 
it's so funny. I'm I'm just again, I'm it's not painful because it's been many, many years, but I'm going back to flashback of um the the December th- or January 31st. We used to go, and again, this isn't a knock on Salesforce at all. This is this is my choices and my specific lifestyle that I was living, but it was the end of the fiscal year, January 31st. And and part of the, you know, part of what we did the last day of the year is we'd all get together in San Francisco and we'd, we'd go celebrate. We'd go out to a big dinner. It was like, it's another year. And we'd even like, we'd ring the bell. We'd have all, all these deals coming in and everyone's celebrating. And I remember one year I was trying to get a deal done. I was doing everything I can. I was way over my number and it didn't come in. It was just like such immense, crazy adrenaline and cortisol combined. And it was all the chemicals. It was like, I was high. I didn't have anything to drink, but I was on this high of like being in this environment where it's like, you got to get it. You got to get everyone's going crazy. And it was, it was exciting. It was exhilarating. But then we went out to dinner afterwards, started started drinking, you know, a few bottles of wine later. And then I ended up at a, a nightclub and then I ended up at a strip club. And then it was five in the morning. And, and it was just like this cycle. And I never really connected the dots of, of the pressure that I may have been putting on myself or feeling, or that may have been a result of, you know, the pressure um, of a company overall. But I was a victim to that in, in many, many end of quarters or end of years where it was like, if I got the deal, I would be celebrating. And it was this, let's go hard. And if I didn't get the deal, I would be escaping and commiserating hard. Yeah. Yeah. But it was always go hard. And I think that if if you're building a culture, you're right. I mean, I never really thought about this. Honestly, I like the conversation, Marcus, because it is, it was a culture of sales. And, and honestly, I, it went, before I went into Salesforce, my first 10 years in sales, I was at a company called Rico and we would um, take college kids who just graduated copiers and printers. Yeah. And I would, I, I managed, um, at first it was, well, I did five years in sales and then I became a sales leader. And I remember I got all the college kids. I said, I'm going to make you so much money. We're going to do this together. It was like this fraternity kind of culture that I was responsible for kind of creating and, and maybe not creating, but certainly reinforcing. And yeah, we would go, you're, you're, you're an accomplice. You yes, I was an accomplice. And, and we would go on trips to Mexico and we'd look the other way as people behave badly. And we'd go on these excursions and it was like, chaos it was it was really like the wolf of wall street and in what you saw in 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 many ways and you know we were we, we'd go on these golf trips and people would be crashing the golf carts and it was just and it was like celebrated it wasn't this thing of like how how dare you it was like yes we're in sales like let's go live it up you guys are working hard let's go celebrate and and i look back on those days and i'm like how could i have done that but at the time i didn't really even think about it it was more like we were all going so hard. It was like, we wanted to celebrate. And then, you know, you put people in a, in a bar and, and, and on a trip or international in these company trips, they reinforce it. You know, these, these company incentive parties, they reinforce it. The culture reinforces it. You're right. It's definitely, I think a part, and I, I hope now things are shifting a little bit just with the culture and where things are, but I don't know if they are. I haven't really been in this. Uh, well, I, I don't think while. they are. And I don't think they can until the leadership changes. There's a, a generation of leaders that need to essentially step out of the way. The problem is they're probably going to end up as investors. And a lot of that sort of Gordon Gecko, greed is good kind of culture, which I grew yeah. up, carried on and permeated because 
of the likes of Jack Welsh and uh, his status among the NBA crowd and the elites of that rapacious capitalism. And it created these cultures in sales where we've broken the sales function up for the convenience of the company. And we've got people incredibly effective technicians, but they're not relationship builders. So I'm involved in a number of communities where lots of SDRs are involved and they take joy. And I understand why, because it's the nature of their job in breaking the rules and hacking the system and finding ways to break into someone's email and break round uh, LinkedIn's rules and all of this stuff. Now, Mm -hmm. I get it, and it's kind of fun being a pirate, but why put all that effort in if you could be more cooperative and find a way to just get in? Here's the thing. Like, I think there's a guy... He's the CEO of Pavilion, and I don't. I'm going to get his book wrong, but it was um, maybe it was Nice Guys Finish First. It either came out today or it's coming out. But the guy's name is um, Sam Jacobs, and it's called Kind Folks Finish First. Is is where it is. And Sam Jacobs and I work together. We're partners. I, I am the dean of the Enterprise Sales School at Pavilion, Pavilion University, and I just renewed for all of 2023. So it's a, it's a great partnership. I just love the title of the book, <laughs> you know, kind folks finish first. Cause I, I didn't think that was possible, but I tell you when, when I got sober and when I, you know, and again, I'm not here to push my morals on anyone, but when I started valuing different things other than material success or greed or financial gain, what was interesting, Marcus is, is that's when I received more financial success and more clients and more accolades and and more recognition than when I ever was chasing those things. It was when I stopped chasing those things. So that was the irony of all of this. And I think Sam's approach in his book kind of reflects upon this and in, in that you can be kind and do the right thing and tell customers we're not a good fit and stop chasing the money and actually be more successful than than you were when you were kind of uh, operating from that other place. So uh, I, I do think it's possible. And I do think with the right leaders, that that's why I decided to work with Pavilion is because of Sam's values and what he puts um, in front of his clients. And so I just, I, I think you can have it all. And, you know, maybe, maybe the culture needs a, a collective shift in valuing other things that are important, such as the honesty and integrity and uh, customer success. But it brings more success than you ever dream of. That's what that's what the interesting thing is. And I could not agree more. The the moment I let go uh, of trying to sell and stop trying to convince and stop judging uh, and turned up with uh, a curious mind, uh, trying to understand the customer and what they're trying to accomplish and see if I know people who can help them and combining what I do with what other people do or what other people do and not including me, it doesn't make any difference. And all of a sudden you start building goodwill. People are open to taking your call. They make introductions. On Thursday with my ecosystem uh, partners, uh, we had a plan 
that I started to implement by Thursday afternoon. And by Friday, we have meetings with uh, three large organizations who would be absolutely wonderful prospects. But more importantly, these are people who are going to let us road test our thesis and uh, give us an opportunity to work together in a no-risk environment. Um, And they end up with some great output um, because I'm putting six of the brightest people I know who specialize in solving the kind of problems they're bringing us, and they're getting it completely free. Uh, They get the insights, the report, uh, the suggestions. Uh, In return, they have to give us their feedback about the experience so we can learn. And this kind of partnership, working with your customer, working with competitors, you and I talked about it the last time about doing a dead lead swap. I would any moment happily pass on any one of my prospects to you, knowing that they would be handled well, given uh, the the result that they need. There are very few I can say that of in the space. Why not work with your your competitors? Um, I, I I agree. I, I love, I mean, some of the best people. And if you're listening to this, uh, Jamal Raymer, he he runs an enterprise sales community. Marcus Chan is a coach that helps B2B sales professionals. And Brandon Fluharty, these are all people that fundamentally are fantastic coaches and trainers. And um, I don't know his, his, his last name, but a guy named Salman. We help each other because uh, honestly, like it's not about, for client, if they're using me or Brandon or yeah, I'll get you his, his name. Um, if they're using me or Brandon or, or Salmon or, or anyone else as a coach, it's about, are you getting coaching? Are you getting help? And, and are the people that are actually delivering it, helping your success in the areas that you want? And so I collaborate with a lot of other coaches and, and specifically um, sales coaches. I was, I was just, um, it, it's, it's, it's so silly to me, this, this idea that you look at people in your, your space as, as a competitor and, and you don't want to, to work with each other. Because if you can look at them as a partner, then you could pass each other opportunities and you could refer each other. And that's kind of what I've been doing. Even John Barrows is a huge sales trainer. I, I talked to him last week and, you know, it's like, I don't care if you use them or use me. I don't, it's, it's about being detached to the outcome and trying to Absolutely. lift it's about lifting the community and the clients in whatever capacity. So you really have to breathe that though. It's hard to get, I'm curious how you got to the place where you can be detached from the results. Cause I know how I got there and I'm happy to share, but how'd you get there, Marcus? I, you- I got there by basically screwing up on uh, you know, far too often and eventually learning the lessons the hard way for which uh, any of my previous customers, clients, prospects, I owe you a huge debt of gratitude and a massive apology for turning up and being a twat. So I'm really (laughs) sorry. I have learned my lesson. I'd still fuck up sometimes. But I just learned from observing how when I turned up, people responded to me. And I, I realized that people gave me back and reflected back to me what I projected out. And the more detached I became, to the outcome and the more curious I became about them, what they wanted to accomplish and trying to find ways of helping them, the less effort the sale uh, uh, became. And I hit several slumps in uh, my career. And when I did, it was always me. It was always something that I was doing or saying and then consistently getting into that bad habit and then repeating it and making it worse. And so then I had to hit a wall. And eventually 
I found a coach that could tolerate me. And that was a help. Um, <laughs> but then uh, I was told I couldn't use that coach. So that made it a bit difficult. So I started digging my heels in because he was in the States and I was only allowed to use European ones. Hmm. Yeah, yeah, that's awesome. I mean, for 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 my my experience, it was, it was similar, but it wasn't I was you know, screwing up and in, in work, you know, what's interesting is I was getting results in work operating from this place of like, I'd say chasing, you know, chasing the result. It was actually really, really interesting because there are two shifts that I made, you know, one was, one was when you, when you move from inward to outward, which you've described and make the customer's success your own. So if you're chasing their success, right, whatever their desire, what you said is, I wanted to focus on understanding what people want and helping them get it. And yeah. that is the, the essence of what makes a great salesperson. And when I was focused on what I wanted and how I could get it, the customer could give a, a rat's ass and they, yeah. they actually um, responded really poorly. But when I started actually shifting my sales approach to helping the customers get what they want and, and in terms of um, not only their product or service that we needed and, you know, a deal that worked out for everyone that was a win-win, but also like their goals, their outcomes, you know, what specifically are you trying to do with your business and what's holding you back and really taking a bigger picture of looking at their role and what makes them successful and helping them be successful. Then sales became very enjoyable. I would say I was still attached to the outcomes in some way, but I was just changing my approach. But when I really started detaching from the outcome of like whether or not I'm successful was when I almost lost my family. See, I had a lot of financial success in sales, but I was neglecting my family. And because of that, I was, again, living a double life, struggling with addiction. And when I finally um, got caught and when I got found out in terms of you know what I had been hiding from my wife, I almost lost everything, including my wife and my children. And so that really let me detach from the outcome of success in, in my career and redefine what success was to um, being a man of living his values in all areas of life, not just focusing on what my customer wanted, but focusing on what my family wanted and my wife and my children and shifting how I spent my time. Because I think there's the the approach to making you a better salesperson, but then you still can be at risk, even if you're outward selling as a salesperson of of having this dark side of these bad behaviors, because if you don't do that inner work and face your demons and really, you know, shift your focus, then you could still, you know, you could still be doing the things I was doing. So it's interesting. You, you, there's a way to sell that's successful, but there's a way to live that is even more successful where you're detached from some of the outcomes. So I have a really interesting question, because this has been preying on my mind a lot, especially since you and I spoke last. And the question is, how does a salesperson achieve target in the eight hours a day for which they're contracted and maintain a balanced life? It's a great now, question. That's a question that I think we should all be wrestling with. Let's pan out for a little bit and look at time as a whole. So you say an eight-hour life or an eight-hour job, but if we look at that they're not working eight hours on a Sunday or a Saturday, right? So it's really eight hours, five days a week, call it. Yep. If we look at where our time is spent, and let's just say a 24-hour day, and we'll only use weekdays. Let's forget about the weekends for a minute because there's a way to handle the weekends. But if you look at a 24-hour day, 30-hour day is going to be spent working, a third is sleeping, 
and a third is spent who knows doing what. Well, if you if you think about the average American, I can't speak for in the UK, I can't speak for other parts of the world, but the average American consumes about five hours of content, either through social media or through phone or through television <laughs> per day. Yep. So how do you maintain a work-life balance? Well, oftentimes, if you're actually using the eight hours that you have in a workday on work and not giving into distractions, not giving into your phone, not giving into interruptions and actually stay focused and execute, you'd be amazed at how much you could actually get done and how, how, what kind of results you can get. So I only work 40 to 45 hours in a given week. And I'm a founder and CEO of my company and my company's doing very well. People don't believe that when I tell them, but here's the key thing. I don't waste a lot of time during the day. I plan my day. I prioritize every week. I have a weekly plan where I write down in order of importance what I'm doing and I start executing. So even as we're talking, I have a couple of deals I need to follow up on and that's going to come first. So if you're focusing, I call it RGAs. If you're focusing those hours on RGAs, which stands for revenue generating activities, and there's two types of revenue generating activities. There's only two. One is creation of pipeline. And the second is advancement of pipeline. So we're either creating deals or we're working our deals and moving them forward. And everything else is noise. And if you bucket activities that fall under creation and advancement of activity of a pipeline, there's quite a bit of those activities. You could do, be doing for creation, for example, you could be doing research on an account. You could develop a point of view. You could prospect. You can write up some good email copy to send out. You can network, right? So there's all kinds of things you can do to create pipeline. And then on, on advancement, it's it's getting those next steps, You know, preparing for a demo, doing your proposal, creating those follow-up meetings, multi-threading. When I surveyed my clients, and I have about 80 of them, and when I surveyed on LinkedIn, I put a survey on, on LinkedIn. It was went out to 2,000 people, responded. And on average, people are spending between two to three hours on revenue generating activities in a given workday. So the question is, well, what happens in those other times? And you'd be amazed how many pointless meetings or how much perfectionism and overthinking or how much just pure distraction that has nothing to do with the core job takes up the day of, of, of most salespeople. And that's something I work on with my clients a lot. So I'll pause there. I, I read a study about 12, 13 years ago, and I can't imagine it's got any better. In fact, I suspect it's worse that the average salesperson spends no more than 25 to 35% of any given working day on uh, effective uh, activity. And the, the rest is tied up on just noise and distraction. Yes, that's right. Two to three hours. That's exactly what it is, 20 to 30%. So, now, what, But sorry, what, one other thing which is really depressing is that the average time spent in front of the customer is only around uh, 12 to 21%. And again, that I think is dropping because you've got now around 30% quota attainment. It's Crazy. horrifying. It was like 50 before. Now it's 30. It's dropped immensely. Well, it, immense. it was 60, 65, seven years ago. And since the advent of all of this technology and the explosion of money into the space, average quota attainments plummeted and customers are generally pissed off. So let me let me get back to your question. So how do you how do you maintain a work-life balance? Honestly, for me, it comes down to setting first step one is use your time 
working. Because if you're not, here's the thing. And I call this, this is my golden rule of time management, Marcus. And it says this, the time, the quality of time you spend working will determine the quantity of time you have outside of work. So if you spend high quality time working, you don't have to work as much. And you can actually be present and have more time with your family, more time for vacations, more time on nights and weekends. That's my golden rule of time management. And so when you think about the typical day, like you just said, two to three hours on, on high value activities or quality work, you know what happens at the end of the day if you waste your day? Well, you're going to feel guilty. You're going to feel upset. You're going to have your mind on all the things you didn't do. You're going to beat yourself up. Who does that affect when you're going back to have dinner with your family or when you're tucking your kids in at night? Well, it, it affects your it affects your loved ones if, if you are in a relationship, if you do have a family. And I know many of my clients are, some aren't, but reality is you take that home with you. Whereas if you can actually work a full day and get what you set out to get done executed, you are going to be able to be present and feel good when you walk into your home at night. So that is how you achieve it is you actually work when you're supposed to. And then the second thing is just like you would plan your high focused activities inside of work, you want to do that same outside of work. So for me, for example, I have my meditation scheduled in the mornings. I have my running. I do marathons. So I have my running, uh, my training plan scheduled, and I have my family time scheduled. So I have from six to eight every day I'm with my family. I'm at home. Then we put the kids to bed and I'm usually watching a show with my wife. This past weekend, we were fortunate where my grandparents or their grandparents took the kids and I had a date night with my wife and we went to brunch and had a had a great time together. And, and we have a vacation, two vacations planned in the next month. So it's like these things are, they have to be scheduled. They have to be prioritized just like you're prioritizing your work. And if you set boundaries and say, I'm only going to work from eight to five or eight to six, then what you end up doing is you, you end up working a little more efficiency. So setting boundaries around the time you're working and setting boundaries around the time you're with your family or the time that you're doing self-care, whatever that looks like to you is critical. It's critical. So that's how you do it as you plan. Okay. So let's start breaking this down into really um, meaty stuff then. So what are your daily habits? I'll tell you exactly what they are. So I, typically wake up around, I would say six to 6.30 and I'll usually start work around eight. So that leaves an hour and a half in the morning. I have a very regimented morning routine that I follow. So my morning routine consists of I have an energy shake to start the day, which which puts me in a, you know, it, it, it optimizes my energy. It's it's I won't get into the ingredients, but it's high energy, high performance fuel for my body that keeps me through, I'd say about noon. So I start off with the energy shake along with a cup of coffee. <laughs> I still have caffeine is one of my vices. And then I, I move to exercise. So I will usually run a few miles and, and get moving. I'll get back from exercise and I will take a cold shower. I don't do it every day, but on the days when I'm running, I'm sweaty. I, I close it out. So people have cold plunges or cold showers and that works for me. And it's interesting because it gives you a dopamine release that lasts three or four hours through, <laughs> through the day. So um, next af after that, I, I go to meditation. I use a app called the waking up app and it's a daily meditation that I do. I do some affirmations some positive mantras. And then I do a daily devotional, which is my connection with my faith. Two minutes on, you know, my purpose and in faith, I am Christian. And for me, that's important to show up as in some of the values that I that I take from how I should be show up around service around humility, um, and then I and then I plan my day. Then I plan my day. I write here are the critical things. I block off my calendar, 
and then the day gets started. So when I execute that, typically it usually takes about an hour to an hour and a half overall. And by the time I'm starting at eight, I am in a peak performance state. Now we contrast that to waking up, hopping on our phone, starting work and being frantic. There's going to be a lot of intention that I'm setting by the time I work. And I'm going to show up in a way that really is optimizing my chances of being successful on customer meetings, on podcasts like this, on um, any kind of uh, deep work that I'm doing. So that's my morning routine in my I have an evening routine too, but it's not as rigid. It's not as regimented. It's more around just the family and quality time with them, cooking, watching a show, and usually trying to get to bed at a point where I'd say between 10 and 11, where I can get good quality seven hours sleep, eight hours sleep. Doesn't always happen, but that's really important too, is to get quality sleep. And then, and then I don't, it's, it's not so much what I do do. It's also the things that I don't do, right? I don't smoke pot. I don't, drink uh, a lot. I, that messes with my sleep and my exercise. I don't look at pornography. I don't do certain things that I know put me in a negative state. I'd say I do have one one vice that I still am struggling with. And that's, I have a six-year-old son and we like to play video games together. <laughs> and that's, you know, and it's funny because I could feel it. I could feel that same kind of dopamine getting triggered. And, you know, that is the one thing that I'd say I do that I'm I'd like to to peel back a little bit, but I am I am still an addict, and I, I, those tendencies tend to proliferate with video, video games right now. Well, first of all, thank you very much for your honesty. Tell me this then: Do you have an operating rhythm for running the business? Because those are your daily behaviors, but presumably those are feeding a, a bigger purpose. What's the operating rhythm that you run? The operating rhythm is for me. It's typically I break down and whoever whoever's listening um i'd highly recommend a book called the 12 week year i coach a lot of my clients here but i break down my years into four four quarters right so instead of looking at a whole annual i look at what am i doing in the next quarter right the next 12 weeks and that to me um is is very effective so my operating rhythm is set my goals for each quarter and then everything that i do falls into achievement of that goal. So I can be laser focused on what's the next, what's ahead of me for the next three months. So I'll give you an example. Right now I'm, I'm releasing the second um, version of my course and it's going to scale and, and, and get launched in January. And I have about 80 clients right now and I'm going to grow it to 150. And so my operating rhythm around the release of the second course is everything that is needs to be done prior to that. So um, organizing the content, recording the actual videos. I did last week on my YouTube, a overview video on what to expect in the course so I can help people um, decide what level they're going to join um, in the program. And that's going to go out to the wait list this week. It's also meeting with my marketing team to making sure the launch plan is right. It's me- meeting with my developer to make sure that the platform is, is, is ready for business. It's following up on the clients that... Um, are are basically in this, right? So there's all of these things that are happening that fundamentally I need to get ready for as part of the launch. And then I literally just every single week on a Monday, I write down all the key things for the week that I'm going to do. And then I prioritize them from one to 10 or 15. And then in the day, I prioritize the ones first. So what I'm doing now today, I've already done items one Right. And we had our podcast here at 8:30 in California time. So I jumped after that. But I, I I have a plan every week and I have a plan every day. And the plan revolves around getting me to whatever that 12 
we call is. So that rhythm for me is really, again, it's revenue generating activities because everything I'm doing is about making sure that the launch is financially successful, that I fill, fill up all the spots. And I can't do that unless I create the videos, if I create the content. So it's, you know, it's all tied to building the product in, in this, in this instance, which is revenue generating. Cause if you don't have a product, you can't sell a product. So that's how I kind of organize my weeks and my days. And it's different every quarter. So last quarter it was, it was a little bit different. And now it's, it's all about the next version. And then once I launch the, the course, it's all going to be about filling up the course, right? If it doesn't fill up in January, then it's going to be marketing strategy to fill up all the spots. And then it's going to be customer success renewals the next quarter because my first batch is coming up in May. So it's like, what is the immediate quarterly priority? And here's the cool thing. It's always evolving, Marcus. It's not this five-year, 10-year plan. I mean, I, I'd love to have a podcast like you do, but it's not the immediate priority. The immediate priority is, is serving my clients and having a great product for them. And then eventually the podcast will get launched and that will be a, another way of funneling people to my program. But for now, it's not as important as some of the, the products. So you, you have to know what the priority is first and execute on that. It's all about prioritization of what's critical and in, in, in planning in, in a way to even identify those priorities. So that's that's my rhythm, if that answers your question. Interesting. Okay, so let's wrap up on the sort of core theme of, around the uh, dark side of sales. You mentioned right at the outset how important it is to have a coach, uh, to have someone to uh, support you. Who are the coaches in your life who really made a significant difference? And as you look back, you know, if if you were to, uh, if I were to ask you, you know, uh, who was the one who had the most positive impact on your life and career? Uh, who would that be and why? Oh man, it's such a hard question. Because it's is it the person that introduced me to coaching in the first place, or is it one of the coaches that I ah oh, man, I, I would say if I if I'm just being fully honest, it would be my sponsor. It would be my sponsor in recovery. And and he's not a sales coach, he's not a business coach, but he helped me realize. He helped me overcome my addiction. He helped me, uh, you know, with the tools that I needed. He gave me a voice to realize I wasn't alone. I'd put him first because he introduced me to recovery. And he actually was on that first call, my first 12-step meeting. He was running it and he just spoke to me and, and, you know, I was empty inside. I was so vulnerable and so, you know, upset. And, and he reached a helping hand and, and showed me what love looks like and support looks like. And that led to me going to therapist. It was probably my second greatest coach was my, was my therapist. That was really helping me in the addiction that I struggle with, uh, which was sex and porn. You know, it was always, I had a lot of vices, but, but that was my big one that I struggle with. And that was something that then I was able to, to address and eliminate. And it's been, like I said, it's, it's been a long time for me, but that led to other addictions. So, you know, I started stop by stopping porn and then it led to Adderall. I got off of it and then alcohol and weed. So it's not, it's not a matter of are these things right or wrong, good or bad. It's just for me, I was, I was using them as, a, as an escape. And, um, and once I was able to address that, that's when by stopping some of these behaviors, that's when I opened up space to start serving and to really start giving and creating. So that's where I say like all the other coaches I had around business and around, um, you know, my, my brand building and, and selling and all the people that I could recognize. And I, I can name a few of them, you know, Marcus Chan is one, Rory Vaden's one, Ben Skemper's one, 
Sam Ovens, who I work with now, I, I have so many coaches, but all none of that would be possible if I was still living that double life and living in that dark side because I would have been a hypocrite and w- w- would would literally not have been practicing the things that I'm preaching and teaching right now. So that's why I put the the recovery and the addiction coaches top for for me anyway. And so, have you managed to fill the void? Oh yeah, oh yeah, big time, big time. Okay. So many things I'm doing now to fill the void. It's it's. Uh, I, I'd say there's always going to be that. You don't just change your personality. I'll tell you. But what you said is key. It's find alternative things to fill that void that are healthy, that are positive, that build connection and give you a chance to help enrich the lives of other people. So I can share what how I fill the void if you want to know what I do yeah. to fill the void. So there's a few things. So one is again, like I said, I'm still an addict. Uh, that doesn't go away. I'm in recovery, but now I I get addicted to health. So for me, running marathons has been a, a big thing that takes up a lot of time and requires me to be focused and disciplined. So that that's one area. Another area is just like full on travel, right? Being able to go on trips with with my family, with my wife. We we always are scheduling fun, adventurous things to do that are you know exciting, that are new, that give you that variety that a lot of addicts want, you know, that variety, that excitement. So it sounds so simple and maybe a little bit of corny, but we're going to Disneyland next month. And in Disneyland, we're, I just like bringing my two-year-old there for the first time. And then we booked a nice hotel and we we're going to have all the characters at breakfast the next day. And like that you, fills you a void. realize your two-year-old is going to be terrified of a uh, seven foot rat. <laughs> we'll see he watches we, we, used to, we used to go to the conference um in orlando and the parents would drag these kids up at breakfast when goofy and mickey were coming around to say hello yeah. uh, and the parents would be excited and these kids would just be screaming their heads off That's so funny yeah hopefully not <laughs> maybe we're more excited than him this summer, just this summer, we went. I went to six concerts. I went to Red Hot Chili Peppers. I went with my wife. I went to Roger Waters to see Pink Floyd. I went to see Santana and Earth, Wind, and Fire and John Mayer. And um, you're showing so many, your age now. I love <laughs> '90s and '80s. I, I I'm 43. I, I love the classic rock. I don't know what's going on now with music, but I I like what I like. And that's exactly it. You need excitement. You need variety. You need trips. You need things you enjoy. I went to a comedy show two weeks ago. So I fill it with like fun things and exciting things, but not with like consumption type of, that's what I, like I'm creating you're tra- memories. You're trading, you're trading chemicals for experiences. That's right. That's that's the best way to put it. Okay. Fabulous. In how can people get hold of you? Well, I think LinkedIn's probably the best way. I'm on there a lot. So send me a direct message on LinkedIn. If you are interested in coaching and next year's program in January, I'm opening it up. And the website for that is untapyoursalespotential.com. Again, that's untapyoursalespotential.com. Or if you just want to watch my videos or consume any of my content, I I do a lot of trainings. I put it all on YouTube. My YouTube is um, Ian Koniak. Just search, you'll see my YouTube channel. And I have a newsletter and you can sign up um, for that as well on my my website, Untap Your Sales Potential. So those are the best ways to get a hold of me. And we'll put that in the uh, the link to that in the show notes as well. Sounds good. Excellent. Ian Koniak, thank you. Thanks, Marcus. Appreciate you. So this is Marcus Kauke signing off once again from the Inquisitor podcast. If you found this useful and insightful, then please like, comment, and share. Tag somebody who you know may be struggling with some of these issues. Put them in touch with Ian, put them in touch with me, 
we help uh, fix broken people because uh, we're broken and we get this. The reality is that it's tough out there. It's going to get a lot tougher. And having people who can support you and who care about you and your outcomes is going to be more important than ever, especially if you want to perform at your best. If you want to get a hold of me, Marcus at laughs-last.com or click the link in the show notes for a booking for a meeting with me. In the meantime, stay safe and happy selling. Bye-bye.